again. Uh, this morning we're continuing in our series on the book of Jeremiah, Finding God in the Wilderness, where we've been exploring what it looks like to walk through wilderness seasons as followers of Christ and to see God's hand at work within them. Where is he? Where is God when life feels strained, overly difficult, lacking in meaning, futile? How do we respond as followers of Christ when we feel like we've entered into a wilderness or feel like we've been stuck in one for a really long time? How do we find him? How did Jeremiah find him? The passage for this morning is a little bit longer, 19 verses, so we're going to hop right in. And the hope for this morning is to present five key truths, okay? Five key truths, which help us to better understand ourselves in light of this calling to be prophetic witnesses in the wilderness, which we talked about last week. The calling to meet with God, to hear his voice, and to speak his truth out of our wilderness wanderings, okay? So we're going to read in Jeremiah 2. So if you've got a Bible with you, You can turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're going to be starting at verse 1 and going to verse 19. Okay, and the words will also be up on the screen. Jeremiah 2, verses 1 through 19. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become a plunder? Lions have roared, they've growled at him, they've laid waste his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have cracked your skull. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt and drink water from the Nile? Why go to Assyria and drink water from the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God 
and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what I want to do this morning um, is take you through this passage. I'm just going to give myself a little more room here, okay? Is that okay? <laughs> um, I want to do this morning is take you through this passage and, and one at a, a time, one at a time, offer some truths that are highlighted here in this passage or that are given to us here. So this is officially Jeremiah's first prophetic word, right? So last week we looked at his calling into prophetic ministry, and this week we're looking at the first real prophetic word that Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives to him to give to the leaders in Jerusalem. So we're talking here the religious leaders in Jerusalem, all of them, probably coming out of the temple. He's probably delivering this from the temple. And this then is likely a, a prophetic word, since it's the first one, it's the first one that he's delivering, this is probably a bit of an overview or a synopsis of the problems that God really wants to address with his people, okay? These are the real problems. So what does he have to say to them? Where does God even begin? Well, perhaps not where we think he would. Starting at verse 2, this is what the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Where does Yahweh begin? Not with anger or berating his people like we think he probably would. No, he, he begins with calling the people to remember. He's remembering. He calls to mind the days when Israel was wandering through the wilderness after their slavery in Egypt, after they'd been freed from slavery, wandering through the desert with Moses, and they actually sought to obey his counsel. They actually sought him. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there were bumps and bruises along the way. Uh, you can't get very far into the Exodus narrative without hearing about how stubborn and hard-hearted the people were, but they were just starting to get to know this God who had rescued them. And compared to what they are now in, in the context of this passage, God likens the earlier Israel to a bride who was so deeply in love with her husband that she would follow him anywhere. And now, please note that this isn't, you know, just some cute romantic imagery that he's offering them, okay? In the ancient Near East, a wife would depend on her husband for absolute protection and security, Okay, a woman was similar in that time to a little bit above, but similar to a slave and a child. They were all kind of looped together. You had to be under the authority of someone else. And so if it wasn't your own father, it was hopefully a husband. It's the only way that a woman in those days had any kind of protection over her. Otherwise, you could very easily be ostracized from all of your social groups, from all of society, and potentially mistreated. If you think of the story of the woman at the well in John 4, it's a case in point. This is why also in the New Testament, the early Christians were called, charged over and over and over with taking care of the widows and the orphans because they had no protection. As a widow, you didn't have anybody. You had no protection. They were some of the most vulnerable members of society. So really, for God to use this imagery for Israel is quite humbling. But he's reminding them that back in their wilderness days, back in their wilderness wanderings, they willingly took on this humble state. 
They willingly took on this lowly state in order to depend on God for their safety and well-being. It takes a level of humility to say, I need you, in other words. And that lowly state and that humility actually enabled Israel to better live into the identity that God had given them. Look at verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord. Israel was holy to the Lord. We talked about this last week. They were set apart, consecrated for a special task meant to be. Their whole purpose was to be devoted to Yahweh and used for His purposes to serve Him. But before we think that this is all just about Israel, notice the next phrase that he says about them. They were also the first fruits of his harvest. The first fruits. In other words, there was always supposed to be more harvesting. Israel was just the beginning. They were as the first fruits. They were the ones who were protected and guarded so that they could be Yahweh's holy people for the surrounding nations. The whole point was to gather more people in. Israel existed for the sake of the nations. Old Testament scholar Chris Wright says this, God has a universal goal. Lest we forget, this is God's universal goal. The material that we have on Israel's history was never an end in itself for the sake of Israel alone. All of his dealings with Israel are meant to be seen in light of his larger pursuit for all nations. Israel existed for the sake of the nations. That was their purpose. So we should not read the Old Testament and think that there's any kind of favoritism going on. That's simply not the case. That's why every book in the Old Testament highlights that God is a God of the whole earth, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This is why Pharaoh was so threatened by him in Exodus, because what God makes that kind of a claim? God has in mind to have a harvest among all the nations of the earth. So Israel was not the end of his interests. It was just the beginning. And the early Christians actually used the same language of first fruits. They they knew that they were just the beginning, just the start that pointed to a much larger ingathering, an ingathering that Jesus alluded to when he said to his disciples, the fields are ripe for the harvest. This language was continued. There was always meant to be a big global harvest. So truth number one, then, for this morning is this. And don't worry, the other truths will come faster. God's mission is for all nations. And Israel and the early Christians were just the first fruits, just the beginning. That's that's the larger framework that this prophecy is seeking to embed us in. This is something that God wants to say right from the start. In case you forgot, this is the big picture, okay? Okay? That's where we start. Remember who this God is. But then look at where the text takes us. Verse 5. Here is where the Lord begins to lament. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? In other words, what did I do, says the Lord? What 
charge could you possibly have against me? What did I do to turn you away? Some of you who are parents in the room perhaps sometimes want to say the same thing to your children. What did I do wrong? <laughs> Why are you treating me this way? Don't worry, you have a heavenly father who empathizes with you. From God's vantage point, he didn't do anything to push them away. End of verse 5, they followed, not me, but worthless idols, and became worthless themselves. You really can't get very far into any prophetic book in Scripture without hearing about Israel's idolatry, without being confronted by the human inclination to choose other things, other objects, over the one true God. It's all over Jeremiah. Chapter 4 talks about creation actually undoing itself, becoming formless and void because of the people's sins. Chapter 5 talks about how their sins have deprived them of any good. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in a couple weeks. Because of their sins and because the leaders are ruling by their own authority. Chapters 7, 11, and 14 highlight how they're falling prey to the delusions of their own minds, to stubbornness, to hard-heartedness, to covenant-breaking. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So much of any prophetic book in the Old Testament is really a lament. It's God's lament of how his people have turned away from him. They worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Now, that sounds a little bit harsh, but what are we really talking about here? Why does he call them worthless? What Worthless for what? Well, for what we just talked about. For the task that they were supposed to accomplish. For God's mission. So truth number two is this. Idolatry affects witness. Look at what Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 22. God says, people from many nations, many nations, will pass by this city and will ask one another, why had the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. Other nations are going to look at the city and see the impact of what their sins had done. It was the exact opposite, you see. It's so ironic because this is the exact opposite of what the nations were supposed to see. God's great mission to reach all nations nations, is soured by the failing of his people to actually worship him because their idolatry nullified their witness. And ironically, they're not even worshiping real gods. In verse 5 and 8, he calls them worthless idols, idols made of stone or wood, literally things that they made with their own two hands, statues that were created by human hands, made of, of wood or stone, like literally they can't do anything. They're worthless. And in worshiping these objects, the people became worthless themselves. Now, the word there for worthless is actually the same word that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with that book, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes constantly uses this term meaningless, uh, futile, it's vanity, everything is meaningless. It's the same word. Their meaningless worship rendered them the same. 
So truth number three is this. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. It's true. Whatever it is that consumes your thinking and your desires will overtake you. That's what will drive your life. For instance, if it's your job, like all that matters, and we're talking here the only thing that matters, all that matters is making it big, being successful, making lots of money, that desire will be your life. And it will not satisfy you. If it's a romantic relationship, like all that matters, the only thing that matters is being with someone who makes you feel loved, affirmed, purposeful, significant, complete, that desire will run your life. And it will not satisfy you. If it's self-fulfillment, like all that matters is sort of finding my true self, doing what makes me happy and having the perfect life against all costs or above all costs, needing to feel, you know, that I'm free to be my own person, then that drive for freedom will drive my life. And it will not satisfy me. It's, it's never ending. It won't satisfy. We become what we worship. And so we need to be pretty clear and intentional about who it is that we worship, that we give our lives to. And notice here what follows when Israel becomes worthless. Verse 6, they stop asking, where is the Lord who did these amazing things for us? They actually forgot about him. It's not that they actively just chose to ignore him. They actually forgot about him. They forgot what he had done for them. Their their long-term memories of his faithfulness were gone because all that mattered to them was their present circumstances. See, this is truth number four. Idolatry not only affects our witness, it also affects our memory. It affects our memory. Living for something else, for another purpose, or, or for a meaning separate from the living God and separate from our identity in Christ makes us forget him. Any, any other object or thing that we worship actually shapes our memory and has the capacity to dissipate all the memory files in our brain that remind us of God's faithfulness. We suffer memory loss and, and won't actually remember his faithfulness when we go through seasons of wilderness. We won't be able to find him because those memory files won't be there. He simply won't matter to us anymore. You know that phrase, if you don't use it, you'll lose it? Well, the same is kind of true here. It's why the prophets were constantly telling Israel to remember what their God had done for them. Their memory was vital for their witness. But as scholar Walter Brueggemann put it, the recital of Yahweh's story was no longer on their lips. They disregarded their shaping memory. Where the story of Yahweh is forgotten, Israel disregards its peculiar covenant way, i.e. its witness, in the world, and soon loses its reason for being. My goodness, what a sobering thought. Lord, help us if we forget the purpose of why we're here. If we forget that identity to be a holy people, consecrated for a special task, meant to be his witnesses in the world. You know, you know why Sunday mornings are so important? 
And my regular devotional readings and practices, spiritual practices throughout the week are so important. It's because worship, remembering who we are and who God is, remembering who we worship and why we worship, transforms us. It actually transforms us. Why else would we come here if not for Holy Spirit transformation? Reading Scripture and being reminded of who God is and what He's done transforms us. Praying and worshiping orients us with words towards this God and transforms us. Coming here on Sunday mornings in the presence of God and being in the presence of one another, worshiping before His throne, transforms us. Worship shapes our memory. Um, perhaps some of you have familiar stories. I had um, a grandfather, one of my grandpas, um, who suffered from dementia later on in his life. He was a believer. Uh, both my grandpas actually suffered from dementia later on in their lives, but I'm thinking of one of them in particular, um, which is a terrible thing, right? Dementia is a terrible thing. Memory loss uh, is a terrible thing. But can you guess the one thing he never forgot? I see some of you go, oh, yes, I know this. Songs. Songs and scripture verses. Words that had been so ingrained, trained into his memory. Words that he'd been steeped in his whole life. That were the only solid foundational thing that remained when everything else was gone. See, if we don't train and exercise our spiritual memory, like Israel, we'll lose our ability to witness. And we'll eventually forget how to find God when we walk through those wilderness seasons. The wilderness will inevitably overwhelm us because we won't have that solid core. In verse 11, God actually calls the Israels out for doing something that no other nation had ever done. They hadn't just forgotten him. They had exchanged him for something else, which was totally unheard of in the ancient world. You would never just drop a god out of your pantheon. You would have your, you know, maybe grouping of gods, and you, oh, I kind of like this one, so I'm going to pull him in, and oh, I kind of like her, I'm going to pull her in. Like, you'd build a pantheon of gods, but you'd never just throw one out. They had literally taken God's glory, thrown it out the window, and replaced it with wood or metal. Or aluminum. Oh, no, wait, that's what we do. <laughs> no one had ever done that. They had transferred their God-shaped memory files out of their memory bank. And verse 13, they had forsaken the spring of living water. The key word there is living water. Living. They replaced living, life-giving water for cracked cisterns of stale and eventually what would be worm-filled water. No spirit, in other words, is active in this kind of water. There's no sustenance, no nourishment. These other objects of their worship simply did not satisfy their deepest needs. 
Um, last Sunday, uh, my mom and I went to go see a musical in Vancouver um, at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. It was called Ain't Too Proud, and it was a musical about the life and times of The Temptations, which was a, a sort of a boy band group, a musical group that was started in the 60s, an African-American group. And I'm sorry to spoil the ending here, maybe you already know the narrative, uh, but by the end of the show, I couldn't help but feel a bit of emptiness. Because the, the show played out the lives of the original five that were a part of this group, the original five singers, and all but one of them were driven to death because of this pursuit of their calling, they actually use that language, this pursuit of their calling to be the biggest number one group in America. And, you know, as has happened with many celebrities and artists over the decades, the demons of fame got the better of them. And because of the pressure to live up to this grand purpose, they, they fell into alcoholism, drugs, narcissism, conflict with friends and family. The list just went on and on. And yet, at the end, their life is celebrated. Why? because they pursued their calling at all costs. That was the only thing that mattered to them. Look at the impact that they made. Look at what they achieved. But is that not just a, a cover? A cover for the hidden emptiness and hollowness that actually defined their lives? Because the heartbreaking fact of the matter is that their tunnel vision pursuit of fame led to the end of life rather than to its fulfillment. Honestly, this is probably one of the biggest lies that we have to face today as Christians. That we have to confront this, this pursuit of meaning or purpose that comes off as triumphant and heroic, but really it's just, to use a biblical term, formless and void because there's no spirit in it. There's no life-giving breath of God. When that's all that matters to you, it won't satisfy you. It won't satisfy. Which is why in verse 19, the Lord asks the people to consider how bitter it actually is for them when they forsake him and have no awe of him. How bitter and empty it is. Why? Because truth number five is this. Shameless devotion to the Lord, awe of the Lord, is not just one of our desires, but it's the desire that orients all of our other desires. It reorients our desires. It focuses us so that everything else on the side becomes secondary or periphery. All that matters, as Paul put it, is knowing Christ and Him crucified the source of living water, so that we can praise, adore, find joy in, and be a witness for this God in how we worship. See, the hopeful spin of that phrase, you are what you worship, is that, or you become what you worship, is that when we worship Jesus, we become more like him. When we worship Jesus, we actually become more like him. You become what you worship. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. That's how we're transformed. 
And if we become what we worship, then others will see him predominantly when we're worshiping. Because at the heart of our worship is a heart for Christ. James K. Smith says this in his book, You Are What You Love. He writes, Worship is the imagination station that incubates our loves and longings. You need to curate your heart, he says. You need to worship well because you are what you love and you worship what you love. And then he offers this warning. You might not love what you think. You might not love what you think. You know, there are so many people in this world that need a worship-filled imagination that gives them hope. True purpose and an identity that they don't have to fight for or achieve. An identity that they can simply receive because it's God-given. So many need a love, a desire, an object of worship that, they can, that can carry them through the dark seasons of life. A love that they'll find out eventually has actually loved them first. So many need that love. Look at the Lord's concluding plea in, in verse 18. Why would you go to Egypt to drink from the Nile? Why would you go to Assyria to drink from the Euphrates? In other words, why would you go to these other places to find satisfaction? Why would you go to these other objects of your desire to find con uh, contentment and completion? Why would you go there? Everything in Scripture tells us that this is a God who says, Come to me. Come to me. It's his desperate plea. It's the golden thread that runs through all of Scripture. Come to me. I am your source of living water. You know, we don't have to be gifted in evangelism to pray that God would give us opportunities to witness to him outside of these four walls just in how we live, in how our desires and priorities are oriented, in how we worship. And to pray too for the Spirit to inspire others to be interested in why we live the way we do because we know, we know where living water can be found. and especially to pray that others would see us and that we might be able to witness and be a prophetic witness in our wilderness wanderings. If anything, that's what stands out most to people. But first, we must ask ourselves, how's our memory? How's our memory? Can we remember his faithfulness to us? in past wilderness seasons? Does the impact that he's had on our lives regularly come to mind? Can we remember where we have seen him at work? And does it affect how we worship him in the present? Is his mission clear to us? Is our calling obvious? Is our worship focused? Is our memory intact? And perhaps most importantly, do we love him? 
Are we in awe of him? And is he the desire that our hearts truly long for? Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And although, Lord, uh, the words that we find in Scripture are sometimes hard to read and difficult to apply to our own lives, Jesus, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would filter through all the words that I just shared in this last half hour and enable, Lord, only what comes from you to stick. May our memories be trained by the aid of your Holy Spirit, to remember your goodness, your faithfulness, your calling, your choosing, your love. And Lord, may we be inspired to take those memories, to be trained, Lord, to be prepared to give a reason for why we have the faith that we do, to live as you have called us to live, and to be an inspiration to the surrounding nations. Jesus, send us on your mission. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.